Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. Today on the podcast, I have one of my favorite humans maybe in the entire world. Her name is Lisa Melodax. She's a certified dog behavior consultant, and she currently works as a behavior program manager at Seattle Humane here in good old Seattle, Washington. She has worked in shelter behavior. She has provided support for pet owners. She has basically run the gamut in this field of dog behavior and training. And when I have a question or concern about my own dog's behavior, she's often the first person I reach for. I'm really lucky to call her a friend. You've probably seen her adorable dog, Simon, hiking with some of mine if you follow me on Instagram. And I just can't wait to dive into this conversation where we discuss the ins and outs of case resolution. What is it? What does it mean? And, you know, can we call a case resolved if the problem isn't quote unquote gone? Or, you know, how do we decide that we get to kind of put that finished stamp on one of our cases? So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Everybody, I'm so excited to have my friend Lisa on the podcast today. Lisa, will you please introduce yourself and share your pronouns with everybody? Hi everyone, I am Lisa Mullinex and my pronouns are she, her, and uh, since I'm from California, dude. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I'm going to call you dude for the rest of this conversation. Totally fine. If I haven't called you dude before, that's just, that's unusual. I feel like you have. I probably have. <laughs> Today we are discussing... Uh, something that came up in Patreon. So we had, I had a Patreon question from a trainer who's dealing with some emotional fallout of her in herself regarding lack of case resolution. So the concern was, you know, how do you as a professional, as a person deal with when cases don't resolve? And I'm really lucky to be friends with Lisa and to live in the same area. And so we were on a walk and we discussed this question. And I really wanted to have Lisa on the podcast to discuss it with you all, because I think we got into some really important pieces that maybe are missing um, in our industry, because as we know, our industry is not regulated. And so there's not a standard set of kind of 
education that anybody gets. And I have to say the education opportunities that I'm aware of that exist also don't really involve this stuff. So really important, I think, to dig in. The first thing, Lisa, that I think we have to just put on the table is that we as trainers and behavior consultants need to be discussing expectations and goals with our clients right up front. Absolutely. I, I think that it's, you know, it's certainly something I failed to do for a long time. I think we are in our industry, you know, there's always the battle over philosophy and methodology. And especially as newer trainers, we have that tendency to, to, to want to convince our clients that why our methodology is the right way to go and why they want to avoid other things. And they're reading that on the internet as well. Um, and one day, I mean, this was probably, you know, 12, 15 years into my career, I had a client say, you know, everything I've read and, and everyone I've talked to, they, they talk about why to use positive reinforcement, why not to do these things. But what they have never said is that it's not going to fix the problem. Is that what's not going to fix the problem? That, that using a certain method is not going ah. to, for example, make the aggression go away. Yeah. Or, right, that, that really what the expectation is, is that we are going to be able to increase what the dog can tolerate before they show that behavior. Yes. That we don't actually I, make anything go away because behavior is like energy it's it cannot be created or destroyed right so like it's like um right. it's it's this it, i like to think of it as basically like water you can push it around you can spread it out you can kind of soak it up but like it's not going anywhere um right. i think that probably where the expectation from our clientele came from that we could walk in and fix it like a computer is TV trainers for sure. Um, because I think we, you know, I know that we were both actively training in the industry when Caesar Milan came about and yep. our industry changed, I think in one way for the better, which is that more people became aware that dog training was a service they could pay for, but then also for the worse, because the expectation about that service was set up, um, set us, set a lot of people up to fail and set trainers, uh, set owners up to fail as well. So what's that conversation look like for you with a client? Because it's important to talk about both their expectations and goals, but also what's realistic for them and their dog and for you. I think, you know, now it, it starts with that initial conversation, whether that's, you know, for me, it's usually on the phone it's, it's not waiting until I get to their house, but asking them, you know, what, what their goal is, where they want to get with that dog. And if they say, well, I've had this dog who's been fearful of people ever since he was a puppy, but I really got him because I want a therapy dog. Yeah. Then we, we can talk about that. Um, there have also been times that say working with reactivity, I just, um, in that initial conversation might set that expectation up front and say, look, this is what it's going to look like. This is what, how many sessions we're going to need just so that you feel comfortable. You have the skills to keep working with them. And 
this is a realistic expectation that you can walk down the sidewalk and pass by another dog um, without a reaction um, within reason, but also understanding that there are going to be um, some situations that may still be difficult for your dog to, um, to handle. Um, and they may, they are not likely to be a dog park dog. Yes. So just kind of outlining, I think that, you know, if you don't have this conversation, then the client, then you have no idea what the client's thinking, right? If you don't say what is at a minimum, what we need to achieve for you to be satisfied, for you to, you know, keep this dog in your life, then you don't actually know the answer. And if it is, I, this dog has to be a therapy dog. And you know that that's not a realistic goal for that dog. Then a convert, a real conversation about, um, whether or not literally whether or not you think that's possible should be had. And to be honest, I think, you know, for me, if I'm having that conversation with a person and their, I know that their expectation and their goal is not something that I can do for them whether that's because of the dog or the dog's breed or the dog's history or the person's skill level kind of doesn't matter. If it's something that I know I can't do for them, I need to tell them that. And then we, you know, we can end this relationship. I would not consider that a case that I didn't resolve. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, taking on a case where we can't meet that client's, um, expectations and and possibly no one can is just going to lead to a whole lot of conflict it is and um i think a lot of positive reinforcement trainers might get get a little bit um almost precious about the case like i can't let it go because then they will go to the other trainer who does the bad things to the dogs right like in reality y'all if you're taking cases that for whatever reason you cannot resolve, then you're not actually doing any better than if you say, you know, this is, this is just not going to work for us. So setting up those expectations and goals, um, is kind of where we start, but that leads us to kind of, we all need to recognize what we can and cannot do. Like what is, it's not, sometimes it's skill level. Sometimes it's experience level. Sometimes it's knowledge. Sometimes it is this is a client that I don't like for whatever reason with a dog breed that I don't like working with that has expectations that I think are are unrealistic or maybe that I think are unfair. Maybe I don't think any dogs should be therapy dogs, right? Okay, so then I shouldn't take this case. And that was a hard one for me when I first started out because I was poor. So I really needed all of the clients that I could get. <laughs> so Wait, I definitely worked. I worked on cases that I shouldn't have worked on because I needed the money. And that's, that's real. So you didn't get into this for the money? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Shockingly <laughs> enough, I didn't get into dog training for the cash flow. Wow. Yeah. And, and for me, it was kind of a combination of those things. It was you know, the money, having a new business, um, wanting to keep that money coming in, that fear that they were going to um, then hire, you know, the trainers that I've, I've 
I'd seen the fallout from, that I'd heard the horror stories about. And the third part of that was um, at the time, I was one of the only positive reinforcement trainers taking behavior, serious behavior cases in in my city, which is was, you know, not a small, a small city. So there was a little bit of necessity. And, you know, I will say that definitely led to me taking cases that I was not ready for. Right. Yeah. It happens. It does happen. It does. Having, but having an awareness around it can help it yes. less, I think. Knowing what you're good at, but also knowing what kind of clients you like to work with, what kind of dogs you like to work with is, you know, how do we figure that out without getting out there and trying? Right. You know, I feel, I, like, I feel like we kind of don't, like you have to get out there and kind of get a feel for it. And that's, that's hard. Cause we are in an industry where that is, we, we pretty much, even if you got an education, you still learn on the ground, pretty much what you're learning is in the field um, about, about what to do. So let's say you've taken the case on, you're starting to feel like it is above your skill level or maybe not above your skill level, but like outside of what you think you can pull off without some outside help. Right. So an example might be that you've been working with the person for, you know, several weeks, the dog's made a lot of progress, but the progress has plateaued and you're not really sure, you know, what to do next. Now we can talk about um, referrals or involving other professionals. So I think in the case of the case plateauing, um, that's going to be one time that I, I would bring in a veterinary behaviorist a lot, a lot of the time. Do you have other like go, like when to bring in a veterinary behaviorist checklist in your head? I, I do indeed. Of course you do. Um, I, you know, my first one, and this is something that, again, this is where it, it's, it's partially education and partially experience, but recognizing when something is off. Yes. With whether it's that the behavior isn't following a clear pattern that I can easily identify um, what the antecedent, or the, the trigger is. Yeah. That, um, you know, that these events are happening at, at odd times, not consistent times. Um, and, you know, without being able to identify an antecedent that, that tells me that there's often something else going, going on. Um, you know, I one time had a, a case of a dog that had been attacked, you know, as a puppy in the litter by its own mother mm. and had a visible deformity to his skull. Um, later, the client got the vet records from the original, um, from the breeder, and the veterinarian said they suspected frontal lobe damage. Interesting. Right? That's then, you know, the point where I said, this isn't going to be a typical BMOD case. Yeah, you think? <laughs> Even if right? there weren't frontal lobe damage, Lisa, I would say the trauma yes. in early puppyhood for sure, is something we do not talk about enough as being just a major indicator of needing that medical model to be brought in. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, those are, those are typically my go-tos. And again, if, if we're working for a few weeks and I've got a client that is just on top of things that is compliant, that they've, 
you know, they are really nailing it with the mechanics and all of that. And, and we've hit a point that we're not going, we're not as far as I think we should be really at that point. That's another point that we talked to um, a veterinary behaviorist um, about, about meds. And I've seen that kind of unlock that piece sometimes. Uh-huh, totally. And make a big difference. It can make a really huge difference. And for me, um, at this point in my career, I get, I'm there sooner than later now. I'm like, yes. you know, I, because I kind of know that my plan is good. And so if I'm not seeing results quickly with the plan, then it's either not being implemented correctly, which is something that I need to be able to observe, or the dog needs drugs. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, I am all, yeah, I the same. I was, you know, maybe 10 years ago, it was like, well, let's see where we can go. But if it's pretty clear to me that that, that dog is, you know, when it's when it's anxiety related, when it when it is along those lines and that dog either is not finding relief in the home, uh, you know, they can't escape um, those triggers. There's way too many triggers going on. It's all the things, you know, I do, I do then talk to clients about the fact that these meds aren't going to fix the problem, but they are going to help us make progress faster because we are providing some relief from that stress. So the dog can actually learn. Right. And I think you just hit the nail on the head as far as why I go there sooner than later is because I don't see behavior cases, generally speaking, I don't see cases where the dog's life is perfect and easy and ideally set up for his breed. Right. So we don't get calls from I've got 40 acres and a border collie and he does farm chores with me every morning and he's free to do like, you don't get a call from that person. You get a call from, I have a border collie. I live in downtown Seattle. The entire side of my apartment is glass. He can see everything. Yes. He's dealing with constant sensory input (laughs) and um, I need help. Right. So to me, the kindness that we do for these dogs is like, listen, your situation sucks a little bit. So we're going to help you cope with your situation from a medical side of things. I mean, I know exactly what my life needs to look like to function without drugs. And can I tell you how hard it is to achieve? Sometimes it's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because I'd need to like live in the woods with no noise, you know, not have to work. I mean, this is, none of this is real. Like. real for me it's not real for you know um one of my dogs is on medication I am not ashamed of that she needs it yeah and part of why she needs it is her circumstance right she could have a life where she didn't need it but that life wouldn't be with me and guess what you're you'll rip her out of my cold dead hands okay so (laughs) that's where we are and I think you know just normalizing bringing that veterinary behaviorist onto the team is a smart thing to do 
now they're all pretty much able to do telemedicine or at least vet to vet consults. Like they are accessible to you, whether there's one in your area or not. And it's a, it's a really good idea for us as trainers to make some relationships with, with those people so that they can really be on our team. So, but when do we refer to another trainer? When do we say like that? I don't have this. <laughs> this is not for me. You need to go over there. I know for me at this point, it's not usually about, I can't handle this, which we're going to kind of talk about why in a second. Cause it's not cause I'm like almighty. It's because I have enough resources. Um, but I will sometimes read an email and go, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I mean, that never happens to me. <laughs> no, 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 never for you. Um, I can tell you almost every single time it's any sort of separation anxiety for me. You don't want to do it. Is I, I don't want to do it. Do I have um, the, the knowledge and understanding of how to implement one of those plans? Yes, I do. So do I. I did it on my own dog. I don't want to do right. it either. Right. It is. It's. You know, it's not something I enjoy. I find it creates a lot of stress for me, just knowing how much the stress the dog and the owner are in, as opposed to, you know, severe reactivity where the dog can just go home and everybody can relax. Um. <laughs> You're amazing with like, you are that person that is like, okay, dog bit his owner level, you know, level, whatever on, on his own human required medical attention. Um, trigger didn't seem to be a huge deal. It was more like maybe the guy kicked the dog in the middle of the night on the bed. And Lisa's like, yeah, I'll take this one oh, versus, yeah. <laughs> versus I've separation already, anxiety. <laughs> I've already got like, oh, that's a, that's an easy like, okay, plan. That's yeah. Fine. Yeah. That one, that's not a problem. It's funny. So knowing yourself and knowing what you like dealing with and what you don't like dealing with, I, you know, yes. have a pretty specific type of clientele that I really, really enjoy. And I am fortunate in that I work virtually. And so I can kind of filter down and, and work with that type of clientele primarily. But Knowing what specific problems you just don't take, like don't, I'm not going to take a separation anxiety case. And you know, what's beautiful. There are so many virtual trainers who do oh, yeah. none of, nobody has to take that. That doesn't want to anymore. That just doesn't exist anymore. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think the other piece of it is recognizing that, you know, when we have that you know, for lack of a better word, a diagnosis of a behavior. Mm -hmm. We have someone call us and they say the dog has food aggression or the dog is guarding rawhides. And we're like, oh, resource guarding. Mm -hmm. Right. That every single one of those behaviors is really a category of a spectrum of, of different manifestations, different levels of severity. And you know, maybe if it's something where the dog is, you know, growling and lifting their lip when the person sticks their hand in the food bowl, but there are no other manifestations of that behavior um, in, in the dog's life, 
then I think, you know, if you've never taken a resource guarding case before, that might be one that's, that's a pretty good one to start with. Absolutely. But, you know, if the dog walks into the kitchen and gets a whiff of food and starts freezing and staring at the, at the person in the kitchen and growling and lunging, that's not the first one you want to start with. Sure. And I am just going to take this moment to say, just so you all know, because I think that if you are working this field already and you're listening to this, you know this, the thing they call you about is never the only thing. <laughs> so many times it's not even the thing. Oh no. It's so often not even the thing. Like my dog pulls on leash is like, no, my dog pulled me down into the street to attack my neighbor's dog. Right. And my neighbor's dog, by the way, was hospitalized. Like, I mean, my dog pulls on leash could literally be, I had a colleague post on Facebook that um, she's a trainer. She does mostly uh, like day train, board and train person contacted them because the dog had severely attacked several different things, like a goat, another dog, like, uh, like the dog was not safe based on what she said and they wanted him to come to her day train program and she was like no no she's like no I don't take aggression in the day train program because they're all there together during the day like that's just not and her kid is there and like no and they're like oh but he's a really nice dog except for when he's attacking right this is the perception that people have of their own dogs and my behavior cases are never um god they're never the one thing no, you know, I, never. I have, um, some really intense, interesting cases going on right now that I kind of chuckle about what the initial complaint was because, right. <laughs> because it's just this onion that we just continue to peel back. And so kind of know that. And right. then, but if it really feels like, okay, I understand what the protocol should look like. It appears as though this has clearly identifiable triggers that can be managed. I think that's like question number one. Can we manage around this problem in the meantime? Yes. Um, then sure, get in there. But you may find that you have some questions. <laughs> you may find that you need <laughs> some help. And now we kind of land on why I feel confident in the cases that I take. It is my history of case resolution because that feel like that was the initial question here was how do you get over it when a case doesn't resolve? The truth is I don't have cases that don't resolve. I might have cases where we decide this isn't the best coaching situation and we all we all move on. I may have cases that I refer. I may have cases where I, I get a veterinary behaviorist involved. And then with the addition of pharmaceutical help, they don't need me anymore. Um, something that we like pound the pavement for a long time and then just don't get there. For me, I, I feel like that doesn't happen to me anymore. The goal was unrealistic, you know? Right. But right. I, what were you saying? Oh, um, so here's a question I have for you. Yeah. 
And, and this is one I don't have the answer for necessarily, but what do you consider result for you? Okay. I'm so glad that you said that because we probably should have like talked about that up top, right? <laughs> that client goals have been met, number one, and that the dog's, basically that the dog's life is better, that the dog isn't constantly dealing with things that are hard for him. Right. Um, so on the dog side, is that is that that the dog's kind of behavioral wellness has been attended to? And then on the human side, that their goals have been met. Now, I will frequently have clients who have a competition goal for a dog who may be ill-suited for competition. That happens all the time, actually. And what I say to them always up front at the top is, we may not meet your competition goals. Here's what I think we can do. And then so to me, because we always have that conversation up front and then frequently throughout, if the dog doesn't get back to competition, that does not feel like a failure to, to resolve to me. Right. And it's probably case specific. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I was thinking about it and, you know, now I'm in shelter behavior Mm -hmm. and that's a, that's an entirely different animal. No pun intended. When I was in, you know, when I had, um, my business and I was taking, um, private clients, they were also a different, usually a different, um, type of client than you work with. Yes. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes my goal was to first get the behavior to a manageable level, again, for the dog's behavioral wellness and quality of life and for the clients so that, you know, they weren't, it wasn't so urgent for them, which meant they weren't going to be either going to that trainer that could do harm or giving up on the dog. Mm-hmm. And making sure they had the skills um, and the knowledge to keep working with the dog on their own after that. Okay. Yeah. So if they had the skills to move forward without you. Yes. That feels resolved. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, because I frequently only, I was lucky if I got three sessions with, with a lot of clients. And so I structured my lessons with that in mind to get them to a certain point by that third lesson if they needed to be more after that I was there um so you know that was sort of what I could get to in resolution there in shelter behavior cases you know if that dog is in foster resolved is that the behavior is at a manageable level it's not getting worse it's not going to affect whether or not that dog is still considered an adoption candidate yeah. Um, and largely for, you know, post-adoption support, which I'm, of course, having to do completely remotely right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very similar. Can we get it managed? Can I, can I teach you some skills uh, via video mm-hmm. so you can start working on things? Now you can hire a professional starting at this point rather than starting at zero. Okay. Shelter behavior, as far as considering those things resolved, that's a totally different can of worms because yes. your sh- the shelter that you are with right now 
does have most of the dogs in foster, right? Yes. But when we look at shelter behavior sometimes with dogs that are living in the shelter, I don't think that the goal is necessarily that different. Like it needs to be, is this behavior manageable? It's just that so many behavior patterns are going to be impossible to manage in that environment. They are. They are. And, you know, we're fortunate. We have, we have a great um, veterinary services team. And um, one of our veterinarians um, helped create, or she created a uh, behavior med protocol and we work together to make sure that the behavior department and the veterinary services department work together to manage and monitor these medications. And so we have the ability to, you know, the moment we start to see stress in the kennel, you know, the veterinarians are on it. We're getting some meds to help that dog cope with that environment until we can get them out to foster. Which, am I wrong in feeling like that's revolutionary? It's really rare. Yeah. There's, a, <laughs> there's another shelter that you and I both know very well mm-hmm. that has not reached that point. I didn't believe that any of the shelters that I had worked with previously were there. Right. I'm really, really excited to hear that yours is. And I'm really excited for that information to continue to get out because if we could actually support those dogs better while they're in the shelter, because so many problems in those dogs are simply because the shelter environment produces problems. Yes. And so if we can support them and help them cope with the shelter environment better, gosh, how many of those things can we just avoid? Right. Right. Like, I don't know. I look at my own dogs and there isn't a single one of them that wouldn't develop severe behavioral concerns after like one week in that environment. Absolutely. Intervention. Yeah. Especially because these days shelters are designed for a short length of stay. Those kennels are, are designed to bring them in and adopt them out. Yeah. And they are, they are not designed for behavioral wellness. Um, so we consider it resolved when The behavior is at a manageable level. The person can move forward with the plan um, or client goals have been met. Expectations have been met. I often say to my clients, you know, my goal is for you to not need me again, right? I would like you to understand what we're doing so that you can do this for yourself if you need to in the future. But again, my clients are different. And I think that that would not be one of my goals if I were still working in people's homes with kind of your average pet clientele. I wouldn't be teaching them anything about the why behind what I was doing. I would be giving them instructions. Like you said, three sessions, that is gonna be all instructive. It is literally not gonna be so. Here's the four steps to behavioral wellness. It's really important that we blah, blah, blah. It wouldn't look like that. It would look like this. Okay, so how many times a week can you feasibly take this dog to that field over there on a long line? How many times a week can you feasibly do that for like 45 minutes? Three, great. Three times a week, that's what we're gonna do. Um, You know, here, I brought you this. This is a topple, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. 
let's have a look at your dog food. Okay, so here's what you can do with your dog food. You can um, soak it in, oh good, you've got some yogurt in here, great. So let's mix it in with this yogurt. We're gonna stuff in the top mm -hmm. I'm gonna put this in the freezer while we talk. Like this is literally getting buy-in on that stuff. That's gonna yeah. waste time. Just tell them what to do. They will, you'll get the buy-in because when they do it, the dog will be better. Yes. Right, I, I do so much just, you know, when I'm in person, feed, feed them now, feed them now, feed them now. Okay, feed now, 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 when her head comes up, feed her on the ground. Perfect. When her head comes up, feed her on the ground again. Like, it's just like this. <laughs> like, with my sport dog clients who are nerdy, they'll be like, why did this delivery of the cookie work better than this delivery? And I'll be like, I'm so glad you asked. Let's nerd out about that. <laughs> so I think recognizing who your clients are is going to have a lot to do with your resolution. If I had three sessions with a pet owner, I wouldn't get nerdy at all. There'd be zero nerd situation. I yeah. would serve that for conversations with people like you. And that's where I eventually got to, you know, 20 years down the road was instead of sitting and talking to them about all the things first before we started the plan, um, it was, okay, here, we're going to teach, we're going to focus on these three behaviors today. Mm -hmm. and as soon as we would you know they would kind of get the handle on that I might give them a very quick here's why we're using this and here's how you know here's why it's going to work mm -hmm. and it would be like two three sentences boom mm -hmm. we move on to the next one mm -hmm. um you know and if they expressed any interest then I would say tell you what I'm going to send you a couple of links I've always got handouts I've always got yes. links I've yes I tell you what I'll send you this you can nerd out on it there. Um, it's really important, I think, for our resolution to make sure that we are not just like pontificating at them. Yes. Like it is so important <laughs> that we just, we actually give them some semblance of relief in that first session in their home. Because yeah. then yeah. they're going to, then you're going to be there again. And even if, the dog is still barky lungy when you're done with these three sessions. Cause guess what? They're going to be three sessions. Yes. On reactivity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But now if the person's got equipment on the dog that allows them to control them a little bit better, that isn't causing more reactivity. Yes. Right. So I'm talking non-painful. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I love a nice front connection harness yeah. um, <laughs> on pretty much anybody. Um, and the dog is able to cross the street with the owner and eat a cookie, you've just given that person the gift of managing around another person with a dog. And so that is resolution. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we, it's interesting because we kind of came up with a definition, but we have three different scenarios. Where it looks different. Yeah. 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 Because... I think it's going to be, it's so case specific, whether something is resolved and you're going to get clients too, who are with you for a long time yeah. and you're never going to like stamp done on it. Right. Right. And that's, yeah. that has to be okay too. So the last kind of piece that I really think it's important that we hit on is colleague 
collaboration, asking for help um, of other trainers. If you go post in a dog training Facebook group about your case that you need help on, only the nicest groups are going to be nice to you about that. And I don't even know what those groups are. I think I can (laughs) name one where people are going to be mostly nice, but mostly you're going to be told how you're incompetent and you'll probably get like very, very bad advice and you may not be able to parse out what's good and what's bad. Right. So what I'm saying is don't do that. What I'm saying is um, build connections with other trainers that can help you. And there's kind of two ways to do this. There's colleagues and there's mentors, right? And it's very important that you recognize which is which. It's important that you recognize that a colleague is somebody who's roughly at your skill level, right? If I call somebody who is 10 million times above my skill level. And, and I'm like, can I pick your brain? That is not only rude and disrespectful, but likely to be poorly received by that person. Versus you and I will frequently be like, hey, do you think this? And I'll either be like, yes, I also <laughs> think that and then done. Or I'll be like, well, I think that, but also I think this. And you'll be like, oh, that's interesting. And then it'll just go like, that's a colleague collaboration. Right. I'm not asking you how to handle a specific case. We're talking about the, the concepts and the, you know, the science behind what we're doing and understanding those principles better. Yes. Um, like I think we recently had a really fun talk um, with another colleague of ours, Marissa Martino, about just kind of what recipes should we ditch? And I actually just, I'm going to hint that I feel like that should be a podcast. Like, because we talked about like, you basically were like, Hey, has anybody actually made this thing work that everybody does? And I, and Marissa and I were both like, Nope. So right. then we got to this like, okay, so then what should we actually do? Right. And it's, that's, that's so important. I don't know how anybody survives honestly in the field without being able to talk to people like that. Absolutely. I mean, and, and especially in the beginning of my career, when I, you know, when I found myself taking on a lot of these cases by myself, I, I was fortunate that I had a few colleagues that I'd either met in, you know, got to know in forums or, um, you know, or at conferences, which is how you and I know each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, being able to have those connections and build, you know, especially those friendships so that you have colleagues that you trust that you can, you can reach out to, um, I think is, is, so important because we learn a lot from each other because we're all experiencing different, you know, we may all be working with resource guarding, but we've seen, we've each seen different variations of them. We've learned from different people. Even though we may be in the same camp, we're going to different conferences and lectures and things like that. So I think we can fill in the gaps for one another that way without, um, without asking for a complete um, case management plan. 
Right. And you said an important word there, which was friend. Yes. <laughs> because even if a colleague of mine is kind of roughly at my level, but they're not my friend, I don't just go, hey, can I pick your brain? Right. I don't say, hey, what do you think about this? I, if I feel like that's the person I really want to ask, I say, can I pay you for your time? And can we talk about this? Yes. Um, which may wind up being, let's just hop on Zoom. You don't have to pay me. It'll be 20 minutes. You know, like it may wind up being that, but it also may be, yeah, this is a service I offer. Let's go through it. I think it's so vital that you have kind of your cabinet of friends that you can ask questions of. One of my friends is like the most educated dog trainer, animal trainer that I have ever known has like, you name the amazing education opportunity. She's done it. She is, I, ext she's extremely skilled. I don't know anybody who knows better than her about the science of operant conditioning. That's just who she is. So if we weren't like really good friends, it wouldn't be fair for me to ask her questions. Right. Um, I do ask her on a rare occasion. And you know why it's rare? Because I just get slapped every single time because she's so much smarter than me. So <laughs> it's a little bit punishing, <laughs> even though she's very kind. She never makes me feel bad on purpose. It's just like, oh, I really should have known that. I didn't know that. Oh my God. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I just asked her a question the other day about, you know, when it gets really complicated, sometimes I need a little bit of help. Like Lisa, I love you, but I wasn't going to ask you this question because you don't do dog sports and she doesn't do dog sports either, but she has. And it was, it was a really specific question regarding Felix's expectation of reinforcement. And basically, essentially, if I've built an expectation of a toy being there, then the closer we get to the potential of the toy happening, the more of an idiot he is. And I have already worked through this problem like three separate times, but it keeps showing up in other ways because every time I think that it's okay to just like casually hand him a toy at the end of the session and let him play with it by himself I'm wrong um and then it's bleeding into my obedience because he thinks the dumbbell is a toy I mean it is a thing <laughs> and I was like dude I need help on that and she made it she made it really clear but if she were not somebody who I have, you know, been drunk with on New Year's Eve, like I would not be fair for me to ask her that question. So it's just, you know, like you need to know where you stand with this person before you say, hey, can I ask you a question? <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I have certainly, um, you know, reached out to you about some things and, and we've discussed some things, but um, you know, as we know, my dog has many challenges and there are things that I recognize even at the level I'm at, even after doing this for 20 years with him mm. that I feel are, you know, I, I am going to need some help with. Mm -hmm. And I have reached out to you and asked about hiring you. Yeah. Um, because I, even though we're friends, even though we're colleagues, 
that level of help that I would be asking for. Right. It's not just, can I ask you a question about a concept? Yes. Yeah. It's, I need your help coming up with a behavior plan and helping me to implement that. And that takes a lot more time. That is, and that's time that could be spent working with other clients. It's literally so, the service that I offer, right? It's and so, the service that you offer. Exactly. And so I think if I'm, if you're asking your colleague to provide you a service they offer, you absolutely should be paying them. And if yes. you are asked, you should also take that person's offer to pay you rather than be like, oh no, we're buddies. Cause then it just, it builds resentment and build, you know, it builds a problem. When you need a mentor though, like when you know this is above your head and above everybody else's head around you and there's no one in your area that you can send this person to, right? Because I think a lot of trainers find themselves there. They're like, if I leave this person, I know where they're going and I know what's going to happen to their dog, but I don't know how to help this person. There are trainers, behavior professionals who offer consultations on cases. So there's, you know, there's that, but there's also the possibility of saying, you know, I would like to refer this up to a person, but you know, is it okay with you? If like you, you take on the case, it is now your case. They pay you. Can I be involved to learn? Right. I think that's something that we stopped doing and stopped asking for, but it, and it has hurt our industry. Yeah, I think there, and there were times in the past when I did make those referrals, whether it was to a veterinary behaviorist mm. or another trainer, and I, I would ask to shadow. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And when I did that, I was not there as a trainer. I was, right. I was there maybe as an assistant, <laughs> yeah. you know. If, if I, if something needed to be pulled from the car, I could go get something from the car. Yep. Um, but to this day, I get a lot out of shadowing other trainers. Totally. I feel like, I feel like we all do. Yeah. I mean, I, there are trainers who I would love to just be in their office for a week. Right. Yes. And I think right now, when we don't actually have a formal education in this field of any kind, that's what you got. <laughs> yeah. That's what's available to you. So reaching out, it's really tough. It's really vulnerable, but basically trying to make sure that it works for the other person yeah. is important to do. Yeah. And so I think what we're saying is that case resolution is individual and defined specific to each case, specific to each trainer. But in that initial expectations and goals conversation, you are getting an understanding of re what resolution will look like. And then it's basically um, get in there with, some, with confidence, right? <laughs> like I, I do also <laughs> think sometimes trainers are like, afraid they can't make this work and therefore not giving it their best. I think that that happens sometimes that they're like, well, you could do this or this, or 
maybe that, like, don't do that. Walk in with confidence, tell them exactly what needs to happen. Don't tell them a whole lot of extra garbage, just tell them what to do and support them. And if you're getting case after case after case that you really feel like is not resolved, either your skill level and the cases that you're taking needs to be looked at, or maybe your client communication needs to be looked at. Because I don't know about you, Lisa, but like when I was a baby trainer, I felt like client compliance was a problem. Right. <laughs> and I never, I don't feel like it's a problem now. And it wasn't, and that's not just about my clientele, because a lot of people will point to that. Because I, it wasn't a problem for me either in the pet world when I was still doing that. Because that's just communication. It's, it's communication and it's working within that client's abilities. Yes. The, the example that I love that I bring up all the time is, are you going to coach this client to click or train the dog to lie on a mat when it hears the doorbell, which by the way, he it already has a strong association with the doorbell and it's going to go apeshit when he hears it. Or are you going to suggest a baby gate? <laughs> <laughs> the number of times a client was so blown away by the baby gate. It's so cute, right? It's like, we think of gates as like a standard part. I walk through like two gates to get anywhere in my house. Right. <laughs> we even have like a fancy one. I mean, come on, like <laughs> it's part of the decor. Um, and so no, and don't feel like that's a failure. That is not failure no. to resolve. That is resolution. A yes. baby gate it, I mean, when the answer can just be a baby gate, pat yourself on the back and take your paycheck and love your job. My God. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good day in dog training right there. When the answer is a baby gate, that is a good day in dog training. <laughs> that might be the title of the episode. <laughs> Oh, and I think that's a really great place to end it. Do you have anything you want to add, Lisa? No, I, I love this conversation. I think it's one that as trainers, we don't have enough. Um, we don't, uh, we don't get, um, we don't get this, I think in a lot of the, a lot of the continuing ed that we go to doesn't acknowledge these pieces, but there are things that we all have learned are true. So yeah, we learn them to try through trial and error, which I wish we didn't have to, but right. Right now we kind of do. So thank you so much for talking about this with me. Thank you. All right. A few Patreon questions for you. This first one comes from Rebecca who writes, I have a nine month old intact male working bred border collie, and he's developing some pretty normal adolescent border collie behaviors. The main one that I've been working on is leash reactivity. He's always been a bit uncertain around other dogs while he's leashed, but it started to get worse a couple of months ago with full-on barking and lunging. I've been working him through your Barky Lungy 101 protocol, and that has been helping, but I was curious about management in the meantime, especially if we're hiking. Most of the time, he hikes off leash, but sometimes I need to leash him due to leash laws. When I see or hear other dogs coming, I pull him as far off the trail as I can and do food scatters. I let him look at the dogs, but mostly try to keep him busy eating. 
However, it sometimes isn't possible to get him far enough off the trail. My management strategy here has been to pull out his frisbee. He's very toy obsessed and will obviously will and will absolutely ignore other dogs when his frisbee is in play. Note, I know this doesn't mean that he is comfortable around them. My concern is that I'm going to raise his arousal state even more when he sees other dogs because he's anticipating his toy when my final ideal outcome is that he's relaxed and doesn't care about them. So far, this hasn't happened, but I want to be prepared if it does. Do you have any suggestions for handling that if it does happen and or suggestions for other ways to manage him when we can't get a lot of distance? He loves food, but a steak is not going to stop him from barking at a dog when they're passing 10 feet away. He is comfortable when other, with other dogs when he's off leash. Um, and just she kind of goes on to give us some more information about the fact that he is pro-social when he is off leash. And that he can handle a class as well. So, Rebecca, you're doing a lot of really common stuff that I think is not helpful. <laughs> um, and I think you know that, which is why you're writing. Number one, I would not hike him where there are leash laws. So if you have the option to hike him places where he can be off leash, I would consistently do that. And the reason is he's exhibiting a behavior problem in a really specific scenario, which is hiking on leash, which means that I would not put him in that scenario. This upsets people when I say it because they're like, well, eventually he's going to need to do it. Yeah, eventually he is going to need to do it. Today, he's telling you he can't. Okay, so today, if I tried to, you know, take maybe maybe today, if I tried to take a super young dog on a ferry and walk him around on deck, he's going to be terrified. He's going to be scared of the noise, the wind, the people. It's going to be way too much. But if I just say, okay, then you don't have to do that right now. And I'm going to work on your trust in me and your other skills. And then maybe later I'll ask you about that again. That's a smarter way for me to go you generally speaking do not make things better by putting the dog in the situation that he cannot cope with. So if you have opportunity to not leash him, I would not leash him because you're actually hurting his social skills by doing so. Distracting him with food, distracting him with the toy, that's all it's doing is distracting him from the from the thing, from the issue at hand. It's not getting him better. Um, it's not helping him get better. It may make him worse, like you're, like you're fearing. You're fearing that you know, the Frisbee will intervene in a way that isn't helpful. I think the Frisbee is probably the best management solution you have because it's reliable, but it is not a helpful long-term solution. So the number one thing I would do is avoid those situations. And the number two thing I would do is quit pulling over. If this dog is actually capable of walking past other dogs in class and working in class, then you should be asking him to do that and insisting that he does it. With the caveat that, once again, if he's got this long history of barking and lunging in this specific scenario, that's going to be hard for you. And you're going to want to start by arcing around the people so that he's he can do that. And then I would put him in scenarios where you have more control over the situation, like those class scenarios. You say that those are challenging for him, but he does it. So if those are challenging, then that's an okay split, right? If he's still successful, but it's a little bit hard, that's an okay split. Whereas you're pushing him way over threshold by putting him on the leashed hike uh, scenario. So hopefully that helps Rebecca. Okay, next one 
is from Ashley and it's not not dissimilar to what I just answered with Rebecca. Ashley writes, how do I make the most of out and about training time specifically for a dog that's very tuned in and not entirely comfortable in the world? If I drive to a shopping center to find a quiet place to practice training, is it best to use this time for just scatter feeding, feeding in the car, feeding in the crate for eye contact, mat work, active training of known behaviors, something like Shade's ready to work protocol. So that's my friend Shade Weitzel's protocol. Uh, toys if he focuses better with those the goal is a dog that's comfortable and able to listen out in the world so similarly to Rebecca just do not put the dog in situations he can't handle and then the the rest of the answer is it depends yeah I would feed him but if he's eating I would put him to work I would not just exist and feed and part of that being that you have a working breed dog you have a Malinois and you didn't mention that, but I happen to know it, so I can't ignore that. Um, you have a dog that's designed to work, designed to want to work. So I would work both on kind of standby type behaviors like downstays and active behaviors like healing um, and position changes and things like that. I would only use toys if the dog is already stellar at focus with food because the toy is likely to kind of cover whether the dog is over threshold or not because they're going to be too obsessed with the toy to tell you that they're not okay. So if the dog is working comfortably for food, then I might use a toy and absolutely shades ready to work protocol, which is not dissimilar to my worked up protocol is a great thing to do. And last one for this week comes from Deborah. And Deborah had, had originally written a really long question, um, and she was so kind to pare it down so that I could answer it on the podcast. So um, Deborah writes, my new girl is serious. Her DNA says 50% boxer, and when I saw purebred boxers at a recent trial, I totally recognized their serious faces and body language in my ELA. It's easy to see her extremes unhappy, fearful versus delightful and playful, but I'd like to be able to assess her level of comfort and happiness when she's more in between so that I can decide if she's enjoying our time at agility trials. Because I don't want to do trials with her if she only likes the actual running her class part. I'm pretty sure she at least, at least likes that. Can you talk in a general way about how to assess emotional status in less expressive dogs? If it's too complicated or individual um, for the podcast, let me know. But thanks, and she goes ahead to say thanks for all you do for dogs and people. Um, and I really appreciate your question, Deborah, and I appreciate you paring it down. And essentially, your question is, you're having a hard time knowing if your dog is happy because she's got a serious boxer face. And it's funny because I find boxers extremely expressive, even though they tend to have that um, kind of pinched <laughs> face. Um, basically, though we don't ever really know if they're happy. And what we can do is ask them if they're comfortable um, through a series of questions like, can you eat? Can you respond to simple cues? And do you respond as quickly as you do when you're just in the living room at home? If the dog runs happily off the start line, plays with you when she's done, eats food, um, isn't outwardly stressed in the crate, I wouldn't have huge concerns about it. But generally speaking, you want to think, what is the dog doing when I know for sure, when I have no questions, whether or not she's enjoying herself? 
And then how does her body language and facial expressions compare to that in this context where I'm not sure if she's having a good time? So hopefully I answer your question, Deborah, and thank you all so much for your questions and for your patronage. I really appreciate it. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists, where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dog Arena and get access to my training sessions with my own dog. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.